Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper with the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Randy Stoker. Randy is the author of Liberating Service Learning and the Rest of Higher Education's Civic Engagement, published in 2016 by Temple University Press. Randy, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Uh, so before we turn our attention to the book itself, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit about your own background and perhaps what it is that led you to this particular project. Yeah, that, yeah I mean, it's it has been interesting with me trying to figure out what has led me to here. And <laughs> sometimes I go all the way back um, because, I, I mean, I was raised as a rural working class kid, first generation college. And... I was always good at school, you know, always one of those people that the teachers praised and rewarded. And, mm-hmm. and so I've literally been in school since I was five years old. <laughs> and at the same time, for a rural working class kid, that feels kind of useless because, um, you know, I was raised in a culture of handwork uh, and all this head stuff. Um, I still don't feel quite like I identify with it. And, you know, being able to do real things with real people that have real results, I think, is part of the way I justify my existence. But I've been taught to do this stuff, actually, by community activists when I was a graduate student um, a long time ago. A community activist kind of called me on the carpet for being just an exploitive academic and you know, kind of turned my world around. And, you know, ever since then, I've been trying to figure out how to be useful. And as I've developed some methods for that, I have been frustrated by sometimes how alone I've felt Mm -hmm. in trying to do that and how, I think, misdirected so much of the higher education community engagement stuff is because it's really not about being useful. It's really about educating students. And I think it is 
dramatically underachieving as a consequence. Yeah. Um, so then why don't we now talk about, about the book and, and maybe for those who um, may not be keyed into this, why don't you, if you would tell us a little bit about what service learning is um, or, or what it is as it's practiced today. And then maybe segue into talking about what's wrong with it. Cause it, it seems to me that the large takeaway from the argument you're making is that service learning is neither good service nor good learning. Correct. Um, you know, and, and historically, uh, this is something that has been established and codified um, by the first George Bush administration. Uh, and, you know, as a consequence, was kind of hobbled philosophically to begin with. Mm-hmm. That the idea was about charity forms of service. Uh, and so, it's giving people a fish rather than teaching people how to fish or rather than helping them understand who's polluting the river so that they're not able to fish. Um, and it has historically been about educating students. So the classic kind of model uh, is you have students in a class, maybe that's kind of focused on poverty, uh, and you have them put in 20 hours of quote-unquote volunteer service, which actually isn't volunteer service because it's a course requirement, um, at the local soup kitchen. And the service is disconnected from the learning. The service is is charity work, so it doesn't bring higher education's best talents to the work. Basically, you're providing unskilled charity service to people from students who haven't actually even been trained to do it. Uh, And that's the typical form of service learning. There are other variations. I mean, sometimes now universities and colleges simply have requirements that students, you know, so again, this idea that you're required to volunteer, which contradicts the whole idea, but sometimes you have to put in a certain number of hours to graduate. Yep. regardless of whether it's connected to a course. And what's wrong with that? I mean, it's, it's so it, it's maybe it's coerced, but is, is it not uh, at least the university providing uh, people will describe this as giving back, right? We're providing labor to organizations in the community. And what's wrong with that? Even if it doesn't go beyond that. There are a bunch of things that are problems with that. One of them is, you know, something that I've, kind of mentioned, uh, which is that when you look at charity forms of service, charity forms of service don't empower and might even disempower the people on the receiving end. Uh, So, you know, if you are the person going to the soup kitchen for a meal or going to the food bank for food, you know, I mean, you're going there with hat in hand uh, and you are treated as somebody who is not able to help themselves uh, and who therefore requires help from people who are better than you, who are more successful than you. And so that model you know, maintains and perhaps even increases a sense of disempowerment among you know, people who have been shut out of the game. The other problem with it is that you know, we, we think about that form of service learning, the, the word now is reciprocity, and it's 
fascinating to think about the word reciprocity, at least in the, the organizations I work with, who sometimes don't even have a budget, but in any event don't have more than $100,000 a year budget. And I come from a multi-billion dollar higher education <laughs> institution. And somehow it's like that small organization is supposed to give back to the university in proportion to what they receive from it. Um, I mean, I can't even wrap my head around that idea. I, the other thing is that it's actually an alienated and disconnected kind of service. So when we think about mutual benefit, which is another idea, another phrase that's used in the service learning literature, you know, mutual benefit is not actually mutual. People get two separate benefits. So organization staff get hours from a student. A student gets learning. They're not actually working for mutual benefit in a common goal. They're actually working for two separate goals. So it's like going to the store. You know, you give somebody your money and then you get an apple. Uh, instead of you know, true community relationships, which is you know, everybody builds the town center together. Uh, and as a consequence, everybody gets the benefit of that together. Or everybody works on an issue that they all care about together uh, and solves that issue together so that everyone benefits together rather than separately. And that's just for starters. Right. Um, so, so I mean, one, one of the many things that I think is, is interesting about this um, is that these kinds of programs are, despite their origins perhaps, uh, of late derided as inherently liberal projects, right? Especially if they're, they're attached to courses that wind up using language about social justice and those sorts of things. Um, but you argue not only that these practices are in some ways inherently conservative, uh, but go even further, right? And, and argue that these, these, these sort of legitimize inequality and the, the kinds of, of capitalist systems that are in place, that they are condescending, that they're exploitative, and that they wind up being these dominant hegemonic forces that, um, and you tell me if this is taking your argument too far, ultimately are doing more harm in the world than good. I would agree with that. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I think I have to stretch a little bit to absolutely assert they're doing more harm than good, mm -hmm. um, but they are certainly doing less good than the alternatives might be able to. Uh, and I think that's the great tragedy, uh, is that we have created such a weak model that we are providing people in the world far less than we could uh, as higher education institutions. And to the extent that we're holding back, we are, I think, allowing society to be less good and, in fact, I think far less good than it could be. And, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I certainly understand the point that you know, when some professors get in a classroom and have their students do service learning, there is a kind of liberal politics that might be 
part of that classroom. Not always, but sometimes. Um, but I look at actually the practice of service learning as a philosophy and a structure, which is much more neoliberal and consequently conservative than it is liberal. So, for example, when college students tutor um, marginalized grade school or high school students to succeed in classrooms that deny their history, that deny their culture, and get those grade school or high school students to fit in to a system which doesn't serve them well as individuals, that's a neoliberal project. And as a consequence, you know, service learning itself as a liberal thing, no, I, I just don't see it. And then, so the example you just offered, that sort of, of, in some ways, works the other way as well, right? Not only is it, um, well, I guess there are two two things I want to ask about. One is is that um, those systems, what, however we may characterize them, uh, that that you know, sort of of African American school kid in Harlem. Um, if he or she wants to advance, they need to figure out a way to navigate through those systems, however we characterize them. So if there's someone coming in who can teach them tips and tricks about how to succeed in those already existing systems, is there an argument to be made that that still isn't a net good that's emerging out of that, even if you're not disrupting the system itself? Well, the problem is the system is not set up to allow everyone to succeed. I mean, not everyone can be a CEO. Not everyone can be a high-paid manager. Not everyone can be a successful scientist because there simply aren't enough slots in the society for that. Uh, And consequently, a bunch of the students who get educated to do those things, there ain't going to be space for them. And until we restructure a society so that everyone's talents can be maximized in the society, that's going to continue to be a problem. And and so somebody's got to work on building the good society, not just trying to fit people into the existing society, because at some point that means that we have to fit people into underpaid no benefit, fast food service jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, it's, I do a lot of work with, with welfare and poverty and homelessness and those kinds of questions. And one of my perennial complaints is that we are always identifying failure as individual and trying to reshape individuals to comport to dysfunctional institutions rather than trying to alter those institutions so that people are better able to succeed within them. Um, so why should people think of this as a project that ought to be rooted in the university? Because fundamentally, this is a knowledge question. You know, how do we build the good society is a question that requires knowledge. And that doesn't mean that I think that somehow, you know, us smart professors are the ones who should be figuring it out and telling all the stupid people out there what they should be doing but that 
universities are supposedly the places where we are continually trying to grow and develop ways of discovering and producing knowledge and that we should be taking those ways of discovering and producing knowledge out into the society so that everyone can become experts at discovering and producing knowledge to build the good societies. And so consequently, rather than telling people what they should do, we engage people in the process of knowledge discovery so that we can all together figure out what to do uh, and not then be dependent uh, on quote unquote fake news. Um, so I want to I want to circle back to the question of how we actually do that, given the world that we currently inhabit at the moment. Uh, but before we go there, I want to ask if you'll just talk. You 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 make a dis- distinction between uh, pedagogy and andragogy, um, as as at least as I read it, sort of a way to get us to think a little bit differently about what it is that we do in the classroom and out in the world and in the university. Can you talk to a, a, a little bit about that and explain what it is that you mean by that and why it matters? Yeah, and it's a it's a very interesting thing that I've learned kind of over the years. And you know, when you the word pedagogy, when you go back to its roots, so peda, uh, child, you think about the education of children. Uh, and you know, I've learned through some trainings in the past that. You know, maybe the way that we think about the education of children doesn't necessarily apply to adults. Mm-hmm. And so Andra, the adult, is a way that adults learn and consequently is a way that we can have methods of helping adults learn. And so you know, as I went back and read some of that stuff, and, you know, a guy by the name of Knowles uh, is one of them that I think has been most influential for me, as well as a a number of other people, uh, is that adults learn through problem solving. Uh, And so when when us adults want to learn something, uh, we start with a problem that we want information about and knowledge about, uh, and then we try to figure out that knowledge, and then we try to solve the problem. You know, and that's in contrast to what we do in schools, uh, which is we try to teach students everything, regardless of whether or not it's related to some problem that concerns them. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but it's not the way that you solve problems out in the world. Um, And that requires a different method. And that's, I think, where the methods of andragogy start to come in. Um, This is Stephen Pipper. You are listening to the New Books Network of the Public Policy Channel. I am speaking with Randy Stoker about his book, Liberating Service Learning. Um, So, Randy, I wonder if you could sort of pick up from there and and, um, if if we take 
the critique that you offer about most actually existing service learning or experiential learning or, or all of the different things that we wind up calling that uh, and the, the, the different ways that you're encouraging us to think both about what education for students looks like and our engagement with the community in more useful ways looks like. Um, can you put all of that together for our listeners and talk about what you think a better service learning program might look like for those of us who might be interested in rethinking what it is that we're doing? Yeah, I, I keep trying to figure this out. I think <laughs> I'm starting to move towards something that feels better. <laughs> I, and the thing that feels better for me I, is a method that starts with working with some group that is trying to make some change. And, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm involved in this fascinating and wonderful project right now, working with a network of hip-hop artists in Madison. You know, Madison, for all its progressive intentions, is not very good on racial equity in a bunch of different ways. Uh, one of the ways that's not very good on racial equity uh, is in its entertainment culture. Uh, Hip-hop artists have a very difficult time finding venues to perform in in the city. And that's to a large extent because hip-hop is associated, rightly or wrongly, with a culture of violence that you know, bar owners in particularly are concerned about. And this group that has been working on this issue uh, engaged with me to think about data that they might be able to use to convince the city, to convince the police, to convince bar owners uh, to allow um, more hip-hop performers access to venues. And so we designed this project that to look at calls for service to the police uh, from all the bars in Madison. I, and then worked with a group of students in a capstone class to add to those calls for service data on whether or not there was a performance at the time of that call for service and the genre of that performance uh, to look at whether or not, for example, you know, hip hop performances generated more calls for service or more calls for service that indicated more violence um, than other forms of music. And so, you know, we're in the midst of that research right now and the group then uh, has gotten the city to establish a task force on this issue that will be able to use this data uh, as part of its work uh, to shift uh, bar practices, to shift city policy. And that's the kind of work that feels good to me mm -hmm. uh, because it's very grassroots. It's a group of people trying to solve a problem and wanting to learn some stuff that they can directly apply to solving that problem. Uh, and where I and my students can bring 
some really skilled labor because, you know, like one of the things we do in universities is learn how to, how to work with data uh, and how to get data. And so, you know, rather than unskilled, untrained service, we are bringing skilled and trained service. And rather than just putting in hours, uh, we're actually focusing on producing a real product. Uh, and rather than doing it for a hierarchical organization, we're doing it with a grassroots group. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and sort of turning that service into into meaningful service, actually producing something that others have identified as a need, and figuring out whether your class or the university possesses particular kinds of resources or skills to help them meet that need. It's sort of very much inverting the way in which most of these programs are structured in most institutions that at least I'm familiar with. Yeah. And, um, you know, even when we use the word need, it helps me rethink what that means Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's not in the charity model. When we talk about need, we're talking about uh, an individual who has some quote unquote deficiency. Uh, in the model that I'm trying to work from, uh, a need becomes an information or knowledge gap mm-hmm. um, that, I mean, maybe even the group itself could could do. I mean, for example, in, the, in this network of hip hop artists, um, we have a, a PhD, we've got people with master's degrees. I mean, these are really smart people yeah. in this group. Uh, they could do this stuff. Um, but you know, they don't necessarily have the time and capacity. Uh, and so what we can do is bring that time and capacity along with, um, at least equal skills. Mm-hmm. Is there, but even in that relationship, is there a risk that that power relationship still becomes the, the university, coming in that 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 the expertise is located in the university and and maybe exclusively in the university i mean is there a risk that we're still sort of reinforcing this hierarchical notion of what that relationship looks like yeah it certainly has those dangers which is why i'm really careful for example to tell you that you know we're working with a PhD and master's yeah. degrees and really smart people yeah. uh, on the one hand. Plus, they are okay. I'm an old white guy. Um, they are experientially far smarter about hip hop than I could ever hope to be, uh, and so th- that really equalizes the power relationship um, because it's not just me trying to quote unquote teach them things. I in fact need them to teach me things to be as effective as I can be mm-hmm. in this relationship. And, you know, the other thing that we are really careful to do uh, is, you know, we've gotten a couple instances of local media attention, uh, and it's very important to me that the group is out front uh, on that. Uh, when we're in, when the, the focus of the media is on that project, um, so that they are clearly leading it. You know, and I've learned from a few kind of painful experiences with, you know, university PR machines, how much they want to frame it uh, as the university leading. And I've gotten pretty good uh, at, at preventing uh, that, I think. 
So, so what are the other challenges in, in replicating this approach more broadly within, um, we'll talk about your university if you want, or as opposed to sort of generally in other universities. I mean, what, what are the obstacles? Not everybody in the classroom is you and necessarily has that respect for people who are not within the university. Yeah, one of the barriers I, I think actually is um, is a counterintuitive barrier that, you know, so many places, because the service learning stuff is so hot, you know, we've, expect, we've been expecting this wave to crest for 20 years. It still hasn't crested, <laughs> uh, and it's becoming a tsunami that's wiping out a lot of good intentions, um, and so too many universities and colleges their slogan is more. We got to get more people to do this. Yeah. Essentially, what that ends up being is getting more people to do bad practice. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when I'm working with folks in other institutions in, in particular, uh, I try to get them to think about better rather than more. Uh, and so, you know, rather than getting more faculty to do service learning, uh, to get the faculty who want to do best practice. And when I think about best practice, it's that model I was describing to you, to learn how to do their own practice better, to get more rewards for doing their own practice better. And as you get a few people to do really good, powerful stuff, you know, then, you know, there might be other people who can use them as role models mm -hmm. uh, to do really good and powerful stuff. Uh, and so I'd rather see less higher education community engagement at a much higher level of quality and impact. Now, the other thing is that as a consequence, you can't add this onto a class. Uh, you you can't um, and you can't use the hours model. Um, when I do this with a group of students, uh, I am doing it through a capstone class, and a capstone class doesn't have any content I have to teach. So the entire class gets organized around this project, uh, and that's the only way that I can see doing it in a way where we can really have serious impacts. You know, we've, we've done projects that have changed water policy in one of the suburbs that um, supported residents doing um, the lobbying that led to a new community center. Um, that, I mean, I, you know, I can kind of go down the list of things we, where I, I feel like, you know, we've actually worked with a group that has really accomplished something. And, you know, and it's not because of us that they've accomplished it, but we've played our role. Uh, in what they've accomplished. And, you know, so we got to create spaces for faculty and students to do this stuff where you're not constrained by having to spend the majority of the course delivering disconnected content. Mm -hmm. um, you made reference earlier to the communications office of your university. I mean, some of this kind of work well done is going to uh, help community organi organizations more effectively push back against the city or the state and perhaps kick up some dust and cause some trouble on behalf of uh, their their neighbors or, or their members. Um, 
I mean, you're at the University of Wisconsin who has uh, maybe been at the forefront of some recent efforts to rein in uh, both public and private universities. I mean, how, I mean, again, sort of how do we think about doing this well and not putting our jobs or our departments in jeopardy? Yeah, for real. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the atmosphere uh, here in Wisconsin um, has already led to what I would consider to be massive self-censorship among the faculty. Uh, and academic freedom is for all practical intents and purposes gone here. Uh, and yeah, so it feels really risky uh, to do this. On the other hand, I think what's interesting is that if we do this model the way I'm trying to do it, so if we do this model in such a way that it is the community group that is out front and center and that it's their leadership and their power that's most important, you know, then those of us in the academy become like good community organizers. And with the best community organizers, you never hear about the organizer. What you hear about is the community leadership. You know, and, and I don't mean that us academics should be organizers, but that we should take the position that organizers take that our work is in the background. Yeah. Uh, it is not in the forefront. Uh, and, you know, sometimes with stuff that groups accomplish, uh, it's, it's my name and my students' names are never even mentioned. Um, the group knows what we've done. Um, and it is the group that gets the attention. It's the group that gets the power. And, and that's as it should be. And I actually think, bizarrely enough, that can protect us. Although it's also it's fighting against uh, uh, how do I put this it 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 is not necessarily instinctive for many academics to be humble and not take credit for work that they may have contributed to. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we can still put it on our CV, right? Uh, and uh, you know, and put it in our annual report where it's just kind of quietly ignored. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> when somebody says, "What are you doing?" you can you can point to your CV line. Yeah. Um, we have been speaking with Randy Stoker. Randy is the author of Liberating Service Learning and the Rest of Higher Education Civic Engagement, uh, published in 2016 by Temple University Press. Uh, so, Randy, as we work our way toward the end of the time we have set aside for us today, um, can you talk a little bit? First of all, is there anything that you think that we've left out about either the book or your work uh, that you think that we should pay attention to? Uh, and then uh, maybe talk a little bit about the, the what it is that you're working on now. Well, I think the one thing that I want to emphasize is, you know, how how to think through doing the alternative. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the way the book is structured is that my argument is the kind of dominant form of service learning, what I end up calling institutionalized service learning, uh, has four main ideas. Learning, service, community, and change. And they're very much in that order. Mm -hmm. Learning, student learning, uh, is way, way, way at the top. You know, service comes next. 
community comes pretty far down and is totally misunderstood. Uh, and then change is kind of in the basement in the dark. Um, I take that model and flip it completely on its head uh, so that if we're going to do this work, we have to start with thinking about what change means and getting involved in change. And then think about the fact that actually we're not working with communities. We are working with constituencies. And what we're trying to do is build community. And when we think about building community, that leads us in a whole different set of strategies. And then we think about service rather than charity to think about our mutual engagement in a change process that benefits everyone together. And then when we think about learning, we no longer think about student learning, but we think about the society's learning. And so that's really important to me in terms of understanding what I'm doing is flipping that model. And I think that's really crucial. In, in terms of the next steps, um, I'm, I'm trying to just learn more about practicing this through. I, and, you know, I've also had interesting encounters with students over the past few months since I've done this book and, you know, done talks in a bunch of places and encountered students in a bunch of places. And there have been wonderful conversations with students that are leading me to think that, you know, I need to write something that reflects on the students' interests and that gets students to reflect on their interests as well. And I'm not sure what that is yet, but um, that's what I think I'm, I'm heading toward in terms of that. But otherwise, you know, every year um, I engage with whatever groups uh, are working on an issue to try and figure out how to do the best work I can of bringing knowledge to bear on groups' efforts to build the good society. We've been speaking with Randy Stoker. Randy's the author of Liberating Service Learning and the Rest of Higher Education Civic Engagement uh, from Temple University Press. Uh, and I can't recommend it highly enough, particularly for those of you who are teaching and who are doing things that that are called service learning. I know that for me, it's it's made me think very carefully about what I am doing and what I am not doing and why uh, in ways that are are very uncomfortable. Uh, I will confess, but I but I hope also will result in doing much more useful and productive work on behalf of my university. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, and I can't thank you, Randy, enough for taking the time to speak with us today. I thank you very much. It's been fun. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.